Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Southeast Asia is the most tectonically and geologically active region on Earth. These processes have enriched the mountains and basins with world-famous mineral and energy resources, fresh water, and highly productive soils. However, the same geological processes are also responsible for incredible destruction. From the 1991 Mount Pinatubo volcanic eruption in the Philippines to the devastating 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And of course, we all know about the Krakatoa eruption in 1883, the impact of which was felt not just in the region but around the world. These natural hazards, coupled with the effects of human-induced climate change, are driving significant change. To talk us through these changes and how climate change is amplifying existing vulnerabilities in Southeast Asia, I'm joined by Dr. Sabine Zahirovic, an early career researcher in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. His research focuses on global plate tectonics and mantle evolution, with a particular focus on the India-Eurasia collision, Southeast Asian tectonics, the Northwest Australian Shelf and New Guinea. Sabine is a DECRA Fellow in 2021 to 2024, as part of which he is exploring the rise and demise of massive reefs and carbonate platforms on Australian continental margins. He's also a Robinson Fellow, awarded by the University to Outstanding Researchers, a past recipient of the GSA YZ Medal, the Deep Carbon Observatory Emerging Leader Award, and the AIPS New South Wales Tall Poppy Award. Sabin also got the University Medal for his Honours Thesis. He leads the Tectonics and Geodynamics stream of a collaborative industry project with BHP and is Treasurer and Talk Organiser for the New South Wales Division of the Geological Society of Australia. Sabin, that is quite the impressive bio there and I have even left some things out. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, that was a very generous introduction. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate all the work of SIAC and your team. It's wonderful to have you on SIAC Stories. So we're going to talk volcanoes and earthquakes and plate tectonics today, but I have to be honest with you and admit that plate tectonics is a bit outside my comfort zone. Could you start by giving us an introduction to tectonics in our region and how they work? Sure, yeah. So plate tectonics is in earth science's unifying theory. So it describes how chunks of the earth's surface are moving all the time. For example, Australia is moving about seven centimeters per year northward. And this is driven essentially by the heat in our planet that's left over from the formation of Earth 4.5 billion years ago, this huge collisional processes that turn this kinetic energy into heat. Rocks are terrible conductors of heat. So Instead, there's convection. So if you've got a lava lamp, or perhaps if you look at the soup cooking on your stovetop, this is the process of hot material rising, cool material sinking. And so this convection actually drags the surface with it uh, and drives the motion of the tectonic plates on the surface. And of course, this process gives rise to natural hazards like earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, but is also actually very important for the life support mechanisms on our planet. Can I ask, how many plates are there on the Earth's surface or underneath the Earth's surface? We have about 15 to 20 tectonic plates, varying sizes. And the interesting thing is that over time, they can grow or split up or merge. 
And so that's what I do with a lot of my research is actually try to build numerical models of how this process has evolved over hundreds of millions of years of Earth history. Great. And that's exactly what I want to turn to next, actually, because a lot of your work does involve monitoring these geological processes. Can you start by telling us why you monitor them? Yeah, so... As I mentioned, Australia is moving about seven centimeters per year. And this process, this motion, builds up stress and deformation in Earth's crust. So, for example, we're crashing into Papua New Guinea, into Southeast Asia, and we're causing the uplift of mountains. And, of course, we want to know and understand the risk from earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanoes. But there are lots of other practical implications of why we should track this movement. So, for example... We've just had to update our mapping coordinate system uh, since 1994 because the motion is so significant. So seven centimeters a year over 20 years, that is significant motion. So for GPS systems, any automated agriculture, that's quite important. And in, when it comes to geological activity, it's also very important to know where it's occurring and where it's occurred in the past. And it's also really important to know when and where geological activity has occurred, because that can actually focus precious minerals in Earth's crust. And that's what we really need to address climate change and go towards a zero carbon future in our economy. Can you tell us how you actually monitor these processes? Like, how do you know where the plates are and how can you measure how quickly they're moving? What sort of tools are involved? Yeah, so there's a range of technologies and tools to monitor the different geological processes. So, for example, earthquakes. We have a global network of seismic receiver stations that can pinpoint the location, the depth, and the strength of that earthquake. We've also been using high-resolution GPS and instruments called LIDAR, which just uses light and lasers to measure deformation in Earth's crust, so you know, millimeters per year motions as it creeps and moves, and that can really help us highlight regions of highest risk. So... These tools can be used to study natural hazards. What else can they shed light on? As we monitor earthquakes uh, and volcanoes uh, and other natural geological hazards, it can tell us something about the faults and the evolution of those fault systems, you know, the reactivation of these faults, because these essentially are the plumbing systems of mineral deposits. So not only can we learn about the hazards and forecast the risks, we can actually try to minimize the footprint of exploration for minerals by actually trying to pinpoint exactly where we should be looking. I see. So it makes mineral exploration much more efficient and effective. Yes, exactly. It just reduces how much we need to disturb the environment. We know relatively well approximately where to look and where definitely not to look. Uh, and that's really quite useful from an environmental perspective as well. So, yeah, I understand that in the next 20 years, we will need to find and extract more copper than all of the copper that's been extracted in human history. Yes, it's a dramatic number. The idea is that electric cars, which are essentially becoming the dominant mode of personal transport after 2030 in many countries, they use about three times more copper than your standard internal combustion engine car. A single Three megawatt wind turbine needs about 4.7 tons of copper, huge amounts of steel and so on. And so despite the best efforts to recycle, reuse these metals, we need a huge amount of these new minerals uh, to go to a low carbon economy by 2050 to avoid 
and mitigate the worst impacts of human-induced climate change. So applying these tools in the Southeast Asian context can really help Southeast Asia move towards carbon neutrality. Absolutely. So Southeast Asia is a hub of energy and mineral deposits. You alluded to that in the introduction. Traditionally, it's also been a place where hydrocarbon fossil fuel exploration has occurred. But also, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia and the whole region is really well known for the mineral and metal deposits. So, for example, you know, we talked about copper, but, you know, nickel is another metal. And Sumatra and the volcanoes, those volcanic and fault plumbing systems, are what have enriched Sumatra in that region with these mineral deposits. So with the data that you're extracting using these different numerical and computational tools, are you making them available only to like mining companies or are they open access? Who's got access to the data that you're collecting? So we've adopted a very interesting philosophy, which is this community-driven open access philosophy. And it's been really interesting that industry, these big companies have actually been very supportive of us developing tools, the software, the databases that we release publicly to the whole community. And that's been a really important step, in my view, in terms of democratizing science. So many developing nations, you know, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, they may not have the funding for very fancy, high-tech instruments. But e-research, which is essentially what we do, we develop the software in the University of Sydney called G-Plates, and it's become the world standard in research in tectonics and geology. So it just highlights that we can actually democratize and open up science, even with industry involvement. In my introduction, I mentioned the concept of change. How do these deep geological processes drive and intersect with change in Southeast Asia? So geological processes have driven the habitability of our planet. Tectonics drives the deep carbon cycle, these huge releases of carbon through volcanism in deep time that have often led to mass extinctions. But what we now know by prodding these volcanoes, measuring the gases released, is that human-induced climate change is dramatically faster than anything that we've seen in the geological record. So that's quite confronting. When it comes to Southeast Asia, we know, for example, the Philippines is very geologically active, lots of faulting. We, we heard about Mount Pinatubo for the eruption. So it's very geologically active, but in the next few decades, it will also experience more Category 4 and 5 cyclones, which will increase the risk of the Philippines as a result of human-induced climate change. And we saw what Cyclone Haiyan did to Tacloban and how it devastated uh, the Philippines. So it really climate change is amplifying these natural hazards that already exist. And so when we also think about Jakarta, for example, the capital of Indonesia, essentially being relocated away from the active subduction zone where you have lots of earthquakes and tsunamis, being relocated to Kalimantan, you get a picture of how society is so interlinked. You know, we want to live near these geologically active areas because of the mineral resources and the fertile soils. But at the same time, there is an offset. There's a trade-off there in terms of the hazard that these regions can pose. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about Southeast Asia and you consider the growing populations there, it is so important to be aware of how the geological processes are impacting upon those potentially vulnerable populations. Absolutely. With growing populations, we have greater pressure on natural resources, you know, just 
water, for example, and arable land and the amount of fertilizer we actually have to mine and distribute. So essentially what's happened over the last 50 years is this huge explosion in populations that have moved into more hazardous areas. And even if we just think about climate change and sea level rise, well, most of the infrastructure, most of the populations in Southeast Asia and really around the world is in those coastlines. Many are very vulnerable. And if we think of Bangladesh, for example, is particularly vulnerable. There are lots of earthquakes are there, susceptible to tsunamis, but also very high risk in terms of those rising sea levels. So would you say that it is impossible to divorce, you know, your work on geological processes from consideration of broader socioeconomic issues? I think the underlying geological natural world is intricately linked to what we see in the world. You know, it's wealth inequalities and it drives a lot of the geopolitics. It can drive lots of tensions in in regions. And I mean, we see that in Southeast Asia without going into any particular case study. So for me, understanding the natural world and geological processes really also need to connect it up with the politics and the socioeconomic situation of our society. And particularly, as you mentioned, you know, climate change and all these other stresses that we will be facing in the coming decades. Sabine, you've given us a really great overview of your work on plate tectonics and these geological processes and their relationship with, you know, vulnerable populations and rising populations and livelihoods in Southeast Asia. You've used analogies including the Earth's plumbing system, a pot of soup, and I think there was a lava lamp at some point. So I guess my final question for you is about science, literacy, and communication. I know that you're really active in this space, and I just wanted to ask you if you could share why this sort of public outreach, this science-focused public outreach is important to you and how you go about it. Yeah, so I finished my undergraduate, my you know three years of undergraduate in 2008, and ever since I've been volunteering in outreach. And part of that is just my own fascination with how the natural world works. I mean, I came to Australia as a refugee and it's such an honor, you know, to be able to learn something fundamentally new about the planet. But but more importantly, you know, I see poverty in the world. I see all these huge issues we're facing. And to me, earth science is this unifying framework that helps us address these issues. And particularly when we look at our planet, it's a very delicate ecosystem in balance. It's very unique. It's very rare in the universe. The reality for us is that there's no planet B. So it's so important, so vitally important that school children and everyone in society is aware of the world around them, how it functions, how it impacts on us, all living systems, and what it means for our future and how we can actually use that knowledge to make the world a better place. How inspiring, Sabine. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you. I would just like to thank you for your time and for sharing your amazing science com skills with us today on the CX Stories podcast. Thanks so much, Natalie. Really appreciate your time. You've been listening to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.